guys, this is The Currency. I'm Mike Gaston, and I am thrilled to have you guys along. Thanks for joining me. Today is November 29th, and this is episode number 71. This episode is the mystery of the disappearing data, and I'm glad you guys could join me. Got a lot of people in the chat today. Really cool. Let me just say a few shout outs. Uh, we got George in this in the crowd saying, uh, is that a painting of young Mike? The uh, opening scene that I used as we did a little bit of a countdown here was the Hardy Boys, cover from the Hardy Boys. One of my favorite series of detective novels. I thought it was apropos since we're going to talk about the mystery of the, of the disappearing data. But uh, welcome, George. Pauline called it. She says, uh, Pauline Weinberg says, Hardy Boys? Yeah, you got it, Pauline. It's the Hardy Boys. And uh, we've got Meme V. Meme V in the uh, in the crowd as well. Welcome, everybody. It's glad to, it's nice, I should say. I'm glad to have you guys along. It's nice to have you here. I I took a little break. It's been two weeks since I did the podcast live. Now, I did put the podcast out each Saturday, Sunday, last couple weeks. I just did an audio-only version. I was traveling. Uh, the weekend's kind of bookended my trip, and uh, I just need a little bit of a break, so I thought I would... I thought I'd give it a bit of a break, but it's good to be back here uh, behind the mic in front of the camera and with you guys. Uh, let's just take a few more comments in. George says, hey, Mike. Pauline says, I'm 99% here. Why are you only 99% here, Pauline? I need to know <laughs> where's that 1%. You are a young mom, so I'm guessing uh, if, if, you, if you can be 99% here, that's like a miracle. I, I'm guessing it doesn't happen often with anything in your life. We got Doughboy Biscuit. Yo, Doughboy Biscuit in the house. I'm not going to be on long. Well, I'm sorry that uh, you won't be on long, but we're glad to have you, Doughboy. I hope everything's going really well. Yeah, so it's good to be back, you guys. It's been a while. I hope everyone's been doing well. And um, yeah, I hope everyone's doing well. I hope it's been a good uh, couple weeks since I've talked to everybody. Pauline says, remember your Chapter 7 bankruptcy. <laughs> Yeah, 99% here. So I'm going to draw a blank, Pauline. I'm sorry. I do remember my con comments about the uh, chapter 11, chapter 7. I put a video out recently regarding um, the recent bankruptcy of, of Guitar Center on my other channel, my main channel. That video has done really well. It's got about 1,200 views. It's gotten some nice traffic. Uh, but I just it was my take. They went chapter 11 on Monday. And I put a video out regarding that. A lot of people think that they are bankruptcy. It means you're going out of business. That's chapter seven, obviously. And chapter 11 is a restructuring of your debt. Anyway, so today we're going to talk a little bit about, um, we're going to talk a little bit about, oh, I know what it is. So Pauline says, sorry, we renegotiated our terms. I'm now only going to give you 99%. That's right. We... Because we restructured the debt, Pauline's only going to give me 99% of what she owes me. I don't think you owe me 100% anyway, so I'll take, I'll take anything I can get, Pauline. So thank you very much. And I apologize. You know, when I get in front of the camera, it's hard to remember that kind of stuff. Like if I was just sitting reading comments uh, with the laptop on the couch and just had time to go, oh, yeah, I know what she's talking about. But it's funny, when you get in front of the camera and you're live, I don't know for anybody else, but a lot of times my mind just goes kind of flat. I'm able to do the show, but like extemporaneous information, details, specifics escape me. And I don't know if it's the stress of it, if it's the uh, just the mode that one's mind gets into when you're broadcasting. I, I'm not sure. I'll have to get better at that, obviously, if I want to be successful 
as a streamer. Anyway, hope everybody's doing great. It's good to be here. Let's talk a little bit about um, today's topic. Whole bunch of stuff in the news, uh, interesting stuff in the news. But I want to focus today a little bit on uh, this mystery of the disappearing data. I don't know about you guys, but the beginning of the COVID um, crisis for North America, and I know the the rest of the world hit it at different times, but for North America, Johns Hopkins became like a focal point online for me. I would hit the Johns Hopkins website on a really regular basis to get updates on the COVID pandemic, the virus. How many cases were there? How many deaths were there? And it was fascinating. I mean, you could you could see uh, what was going on in other countries. You could see them start to spike. You start to see some of them flatten their curves. You see some of them kind of coming out, uh, you know, back to some semblance of of control and normalcy. And uh, it was it was fascinating to watch China hit like eighty eight million. Uh, I don't know if it was cases or deaths. I can't remember. It couldn't have been cases. There was eighty eight thousand. It was some, it was some 80, I think it was 80,000 cases, deaths rather, and then all of a sudden just stop. It was as if China suddenly was able to just eliminate COVID completely and their data just, you know, they, they, they just recovered. And it was obvious that China just wasn't reporting the information accurately, but um, it was fascinating. So Johns Hopkins became this, this focal point for me. I was checking their website multiple times a day, as I think a lot of us were. And they were just this great repository of information. And I trusted them for the most part. I wasn't assuming that Johns Hopkins was juking the numbers. I wasn't assuming that they were trying to pull a fast one on anybody. They're a reputable research college, medical college, uh, you know, education center, et cetera. And I thought, hey, they're, they're pulling all the data in and they're just a repository. This is not uh, Johns Hopkins um, doing anything with it. And, and I've just continued to think that. I don't think there's been any change. But recently, I want to say on November 22nd, they published uh, an article in the Johns Hopkins newsletter. And I say newsletter because it's hyphenated, news hyphen letter, newsletter. Now, the newsletter is a publication that's put out by the students of Johns Hopkins, Johns Hopkins. What an awkward name, Johns Hopkins. I'm guessing that's two different people, Johns and Mr. Johns and Mr. Hopkins, Johns Hopkins. And they've been putting this newsletter out since 1896. So this newsletter has been out for over 120 years. Uh, but this newsletter put out an article on November 22nd. It was written by Yanni Gu, Y-A-N-N-I-G-U, on November 22nd. And the title is A Closer Look at U.S. deaths due to COVID-19. And if you go to Johns Hopkins and you look up their newsletter, you can't find this article anymore because on November 26th, I want to say, the editorial board and the leadership at Johns Hopkins pulled the article. They buried it. it they memory hold it. Now, you can still find it if you go to the Internet Wayback Machine. If you go to the Internet Wayback Machine, and look at the newsletter for November 26th, you can still see it. But if you go to Johns Hopkins' website, it's gone. Well, what could be in this article that's so bad? What could be in this article published by the students of Johns Hopkins that could be worth burying? Why, why would we bury this article? And essentially, and I have the article open on the screen here, 
uh, on my screen. I'm sorry, I could bring it up on, on the uh, screen just a second here. But essentially what the article, and I won't go through every aspect of the article, but essentially what the article does is it interviews um, a woman who did a bunch of research. This is an economist and a data scientist. And uh, this, this person, this, uh, let's see, their name is, bear with me here. Um, it's right in front of me. Genevieve Briand. Genevieve Briand, B-R-I-A-N-D. So Genevieve Briand is an assistant program director of the Applied Economics Master's Degree Program at Hopkins. So this Genevieve is an assistant director of the master's degree program if you're in applied economics over at Johns Hopkins. And she did some research. And essentially what she did is she started looking at the COVID deaths and saying, okay, well, I want to figure out like what's been the impact. And to do that, Genevieve decided that she wanted to look at the total deaths in America. And what she expected to see was an increase from year to year in total deaths. Meaning if she looks at total deaths in America, she should see a few million one year, a few million the next year, but she should see a few hundred thousand more because I think, what are we at? 260,000 deaths in America due to COVID-19, supposedly. So she expected to see a spike in overall deaths in the U.S. So what she found was there was not an overall spike. There was actually, it's looking like we're close to finishing the year out, but it's looking like there's going to be a reduction in deaths across America. Now, the reduction can be explained anecdotally. You could just say, well, sure, because this year, many of us stayed indoors. We didn't drive as much. We didn't travel as much. We weren't out at restaurants. We weren't on the streets, the highways, the byways. We weren't flying. We weren't taking rail cars. We weren't doing all the things that place us in danger. You know, you whenever you leave your house, actually, even when you're in your house, whenever you leave your house, you get you have you have a higher risk of something bad happening to you. I'm a, I'm a motorcyclist. Every time I get on that bike, and trust me, this year I've been thinking about because I know some people have had some terrible motorcycle accidents. But every time you get out on that bike, you are taking your life into your own hands. There's a high chance, a high probability that you're going to get injured if not killed. And uh, sometimes these injuries are permanent. They're terrible. So, uh, yeah, George says... Less crime, less driving, et cetera. That's exactly it. You would assume that people being out less would, would lower the number of deaths. Um, Pauline says, I stopped taking rail cars this year, last year too, but also this year. Stopped taking rail cars. And was that mainly because of uh, concern for safety? Now, Pauline, I happen to know that you're riding a two-wheeler into work on a regular basis. Don't you have a Honda? Or something uh, that you uh, that you ride in. Pauline also says less workplace deaths, less people working, so on. So exactly, this is the kind of thing that you would expect. You'd expect to see a reduction in deaths in general. She says, Pauline says, by the way, I do take a Honda 300. Yeah, so you do take, you have a little bit of risk there. Just a tiny bit, Pauline, just saying. All right, but we would expect to see some reduction in deaths. But the, here's, the, here's the very interesting thing. So when uh, this Genevieve Briand looked at the numbers, she saw uh, uh, essentially no change. In fact, there might be a, f a, f a handful fewer. But you, you would not expect that. So then what she did is she went into the data and said, well, okay, well, what are the typical leading causes of death in the U.S.? The, and she found the three leading causes the, the, the biggest cause of death in America is 
is heart disease related deaths. Now I happen to know as, as um, j- just from some personal research I've done, not from Genevieve's work that you, there's, there's millions of deaths uh, in America. Wait, actually I could pull it up just now. I won't bother, but there are way more deaths from heart disease than COVID we're seeing right now. I mean, heart disease kills hundreds of thousands, if not over a million people a year in the U S in fact, let me bring that up real quick. Cause I am curious uh, and I don't want to talk. I don't want to get in trouble. Someone's going to say, Oh, you got the number wrong, which means everything you said is completely a lie. So let's see number of heart. Let's see deaths in, I'll just look at 2019. So in 2019, uh, in America, according to the CDC, um, we've got about 655,000 Americans die from heart disease each year. That's one in four deaths. So one in every four deaths in America every year is from heart disease or heart disease-related issues. Now, what Genevieve found was the three things. One is heart disease, leading cause of death, as we know, over half a million. The second is pulmonary or sorry, respiratory disease, which would be lung related. I would imagine those are things like emphysema, uh, lung cancer, et cetera. And then lastly, of the three leading would be the influenza slash pneumonia. So this would be getting the flu. That's one. It's the third top killer in America. Okay. So what she did is she looked at those things in 2000, this, this season from the beginning of the year to now. And what she found is there is a correlated decrease. So for every COVID death, there's a correlating decrease in heart disease, correlating decrease in pulmonary or sorry, respiratory disease. I keep saying that. And, uh, and flu slash uh, influenza and pneumonia. So for instance, if in a given week in the period of time that we're looking at, there were a reduction of 500 deaths, heart disease year to year. She's looking, she looked back a number of years, 2014 and forward. Let's say a given week in May, we, there was a reduction of 500 heart disease deaths. Well, she found there was an increase of about 480 or 490 COVID deaths. Fascinating. So what you're seeing is essentially the number of deaths in America is staying the same. Now we're being told in America that we have the most cases, we have the most deaths, that America's a mess. But if you look year to year, and she went all the way back to 2014, we are on track to have a normal, if not a little bit better than normal year. There's been no increase in the number of deaths whatsoever, whatsoever. So what she then did some more digging and came back with looking at the data saying, because if you look at the CDC's numbers, the CDC shows that Almost all COVID deaths are attached to a comorbidity, meaning, I know a lot of people are rolling their eyes right now, but it, just, just pay attention to this because this, this, there's, some, there's some bigger implications for this. Trust me, this is great stuff, isn't it? We're talking data, how exciting, very sexy. But, but if you look at the CDC's data, the CDC has shown through their data gathering that, that almost all COVID deaths, almost all, I think, you know, 90, was it like 94%, I think six or 7% are not the case, but about over 95%, about 95% of all COVID deaths are associated with a comorbidity, not just a other symptom, a comorbidity, meaning that person already had 
heart disease. That person already had terminal cancer. That person already had uh, kidney failure. That person already had um, diabetes, etc. So everybody that dies, almost everybody that dies of COVID is has some other pre-existing condition and not just a minor pre-existing condition like, yeah, I've got minor asthma, but like, no, a comorbidity, something that will kill you. And so what she came away from this research finding and understanding and seeing is that COVID is not necessarily killing everyone, like we're being told. People are dying with COVID, but these are people that were dying. These are people that would have died if they got the flu. These are people that would have died if they got pneumonia. These are people that were on their way. Now, that isn't to be heartless. I'm not bringing this up to go, so we shouldn't care. COVID is pushing people over the edge. But what you would expect to see, based on the amount of energy and focus and social terror, the fear, based on the media, et cetera, you would expect to see a, a surge in deaths. Now, what's interesting, we've got this reduction of deaths because everybody's off the streets, everybody's not going to work, et cetera, so we've, we see a reduction. But there's been a spike in suicides, there's been a spike in depression, there's been a spike in other de deaths. So if you take this spike in other deaths, but you get, you've got everybody off the streets for months at a time, we're not getting together, we're not doing things, then you're seeing, and even violent crime has dropped for a while. Now, if you start including the violent crime in protests where our violent crime is spiking, nobody wants to include that. Those are being included in the data because that's just Americans expressing and enjoying their, uh, their uh, constitutional right to protest. <laughs> what a joke. It's amazing. We, you know, and this gets at the issue here. We can make things what we want them to be based on our hearts. This has nothing to do with the science, nothing to do with the data. Now, I'm not trying to make this a right-wing, left-wing thing. What I'm interested here is in the truth. And what I'm really interested here, and the reason that I'm interested in the truth is because I'm interested in human flourishing. People, human beings have the right to pursue their happiness. People have the right to, to flourish as best they can. You don't have the right to enjoy a mansion. You don't have a right to a private jet. You don't have a right to a beautiful husband or a beautiful wife. Those aren't rights, but you have the right to pursue those things. You have the right to try to find your happiness. And we're being told the science, the science, the science. But when someone does some actual scientific work, when they do some data work, when they do a little bit of investigative uh, journalism, if you will, they come back and they're like, wait a minute, the numbers aren't aligning with the story that we're being told in the public. So Johns Hopkins, the leadership at Johns Hopkins, pulled that article. They buried it. And the reason, I'm going to just read you a little blurb from their, uh, from their editor's note as to why they buried it. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but here's just a little blurb. After the newsletter published this article on November 22nd, it was brought to our attention that our coverage of Genevieve Brienne's presentation, COVID-19 Deaths, A Look at U.S. Data, has been used to support dangerous inaccuracies that might minimize the impact of the pandemic. We decided on November 26 to restrict this article to stop the spread of misinformation, as we noted on social media. However, it is our responsibility as journalists to provide a historical record. We have chosen to take down this article from our website, but it is available here as a PDF. And they go on. 
in accordance with our, you know, transparency, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. But here's the thing. They, and they go through and they make an argument. What, what they're essentially saying here is not that Genevieve's work was flawed, not that Genevieve uh, herself was spreading disinformation. They're saying that her work is being used to lessen the impact, to minimize the impact of the pandemic. Now, think about what that, think about what they're saying there. This is a very strange wording. A look at USA. It's been used to support dangerous inaccuracies that minimize the impact of the pandemic. What is the impact of the pandemic? We've been told that the impact of the pandemic is death. We've been told that the impact of the pandemic is that we have to wear a mask. We've been told that the impact of the pandemic is that we can't have Thanksgiving with our loved ones. That if we've been exposed in some strange way to somebody that supposedly got COVID, that we now have to lock down for 14 days, that we can't interact with other human beings, that we can't conduct our business. I don't mean business, just money making. I mean our personal affairs. We're not allowed to live if we've been exposed. That's the impact. So why would these editors say that this information of Genevieve's is being used to support dangerous inaccuracies that minimize the impact of the pandemic. I think, I think that's a Freudian slip. I think they're actually being transparent when they say that, whether they mean to or not. I think what they're saying is this pandemic needs to have an impact. We need to restrict the movement of people. We need to have more control over people. We need to let them know when they can and can't behave in certain ways, when they can and can't make money, when they can and can't pursue their own happiness, when they can and can't be free. And what Genevieve's data does is it exposes the lie of this pandemic. And to expose the lie lessens the impact. It lessens our ability to do the things that we want to do. Now, do I think that this is a dangerous uh, disease? Yes, I do. I've said it from day one. The problem is people are so polarized, they're so politicized on this thing that they can't chase the truth with a capital T. They just, they just want their side to win. They just want their side to win. So if there's a fact or a piece of data or information or an attitude or even an idea that goes against their side, their political side, then they just don't want to hear it. And shame on us. Shame on us. The only way that we remain free, the only way that we have liberty, the only way that we can find fulfillment and have a society that is great and wonderful and full of blessing and goodness is that we have the courage to look the truth in the face and let our lives come into line with the truth. Let's stop trying to bend the truth to our lives. This is the postmodernist lie. Postmodernism says you can have your own truth. Postmodernism says you can have your own truth. It's your perspective. You look at the world through your own lens. You have your own truth. I have my truth. You have yours. Hey, bro, I don't want to get on your case, man. You know, everything's just kind of in the gray area. Everything's squishy. And that is a recipe for disaster. That's a recipe for a society that needs to be medicated to find a semblance of peace. There's, it's no wonder. It's no wonder that we are so pumped up with drugs just to keep us even. Our uppers, our downers, our Prozacs, 
all these things, because we don't want to look at the truth. Now, look, I understand if you're listening, you've got emotional issues or whatever. I'm not trying to say that if you are having to need medical attention to be whole, that somehow you're the one flawed, that you're the problem. Don't get me wrong here. I'm talking about us as a society. We have to be willing to look at the truth. The truth isn't going to change. It is it is necessary. It's objective. It isn't something that we get to determine. We're, we're just little tiny minuscule beings in a massive universe. There's no way that we can create our own truth. The universe, if you're just a strict materialist, if you don't even believe in God, the universe is so vast and grand. How can we assume that we can create our own truth? It's ridiculous. Jump off a roof and tell yourself that I don't believe in gravity. Let me know how that works for you. I'm going to get in trouble. Be, oh, he told people to jump off a roof. What I'm trying to say here, folks, is that we need to look at the truth and let the truth change us. We got to stop trying to change the truth to fit our own narrative. It's uncomfortable. It hurts. It's painful. It's stressful. It takes time. Believe me, I'm not, I don't love it. I don't love hearing the truth when it goes against what I would prefer to believe. But when I bump up against it, I want to be brave enough. I want to have the courage to try to embrace it and say, okay, what does this mean for me? What do I have to change? How do I have to become different? Because when I do that, I become more whole. I become stronger. I become deeper. I become more capable and competent and ultimately more successful, not always in material ways, but sex, successful in my relationships, successful in in my spiritual life, successful as just a human being. And so as we're looking at these numbers, there's a truth in these numbers. And I'll go back to, yes, this is a dangerous disease. If you are a person with a comorbidity, let's say you've had an operation. Let's say you've got compromised lungs. Let's say you're a cancer survivor. Let, let's say that you are severely, you know, more morbidly obese, let's say uh, you've only got one kidney or whatever these, you know, let's say you're a heavy smoker, whatever these things are, this is the real deal for you. But you know what? It's the same real deal every year when the flu comes around. Now, this one spreads a lot quicker, supposedly. It, it, it's, it's easy to catch. I mean, it, it is different. But, but effectively, I'm not saying this is just the flu, you guys, it's just the sniffles. What's the big deal? But I'm saying we've shut down the world and we've handed over our liberty for what? If you look at the data in America, and I think it would hold out in other countries, there has been no increase in deaths. Didn't Donald Trump just get flayed in the media for a handful of months? Didn't Joe Biden tell him what a horrible guy he was? I, I, didn't people vote for Trump because he did a bad job handling the pandemic? And you could argue, yeah, he did a bad job. I, look, Trump is his own worst enemy. I've supported Trump. I voted for him. I think he's done some good things. I'll be the first to say, he, I don't think he did a great job with the pandemic. And I also don't think, it, you know, it, one of Trump's flaws is that he thinks he can do everything. Now, I think he's got great instincts. I think he's got a great gut. I think, he's, I think he's good that way. But that can be a curse. Your greatest strength can be your biggest curse. I think sometimes he's just going to shoot from the hip. He's going to get up there. I got this. I'm going to do it. I got it. I think he made some mistakes. I think he's made some mistakes in trusting Fauci and some of the other gang. I think he made some mistakes in letting go and saying, let's shut her down. But, you know, he was dealing with limited data. I get it. But I don't think he did a fantastic job 
leading the American people through the pandemic. Now, to be fair, I don't think anybody was ever going to let him, no matter what the guy did. If he was healing the sick, walking on water and creating miracles, they'd still find a reason to hate him. Now, I am not, a lo- I'm not uh, you know, saying that, that Trump is like Christ. Uh, don't get me wrong there. I'm just saying no matter what this guy did, they're, they're not gonna, they weren't going to work with him. They just weren't going to work with him. But he got, he got the stuffing beat out of him during the election. Why? Because supposedly he did such a poor job handling the pandemic. And uh, if you look at the numbers, the numbers are outrageous. Oh, all these people died. And Joe Biden's up there telling us another couple hundred thousand. He actually said a couple hundred million at one point. It was the whole country was going to get wiped out. I think, you know, Joe's a little, he's, he's on the cognitive edge, let's just say. Uh, so, you know, he made a flub there, just one of, one of many, many on the campaign trail, but essentially saying to Trump, Hey, you know, by, by the beginning, you know, by the end of this year, there's going to be 200,000 more dead. I mean, it, 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 there was just so much fear mongering and this is the problem. It's about fear. And I think that Johns Hopkins editors had some pressure. They had to take this thing down because there is a concern that if people know the real numbers, that's going to lessen the impact of the pandemic. What is the impact of the pandemic? The impact of the pandemic is that we're scared and that we've handed over our freedom and our liberty to people. What is a reasonable way forward? What's a reasonable way to handle this? A reasonable way is to say, look, if people have comorbidities, they are highly at risk. And also to come to terms with the fact that we die, people die, and we've been dying for centuries, for for the beginning of time, mankind, human beings have been dying. That's what we do, unfortunately. And things like the flu, pneumonia, SARS, COVID-19, Ebola, they take us out. And some of these things are really scary and others of them just aren't. Why is it that we're not that scared of the flu? The flu takes 60, 70, 80,000 people a year. This year, the flu's taken no one. Strange, very strange that the flu just hasn't shown up. It's almost like the flu and COVID are friends. And flu's like, hey, look, I don't want to, if that's, if that's your girl now, if you're, if you're seeing uh, America, well, I don't want to horn in on that. I don't want to elbow in and try to take your girl. That's just mutual respect. We're buddies, right? It's strange how the flu hasn't shown up. It's strange how heart disease hasn't been an issue this year. It's strange how uh, uh, things like... Um, Uh, influenza and respiratory disease hasn't been an issue this year. Very strange. It's also strange how uh, the pandemic uh, is very virulent when it comes to certain political get-togethers or family get-togethers like Thanksgiving, etc. But it's not a problem if you're in the streets burning buildings to the ground for Black Lives Matter, socialism, and Antifa, the original fascist thugs. (laughs) America's favorite brown shirts. Yeah, I, I don't get it. And, uh, it's, and so this is the mystery of the disappearing data. And I think at the end of the day, the real issue isn't the data. The real issue is the narrative. And I want to encourage you, if you, if you believe in the truth, uh, uh, you know, you got to listen to the narrative. Now, here's what I'm going to do. Hold on one second. I want to just read a few comments. And then I want to play a clip for you. It's a little long, but I want to play a clip for you that I think might be very interesting. Uh, so let's see here. I'm just going to back up a little bit. Um, uh, Pauline says, my preconceived opinions don't care about your facts. <laughs> That's a great way to say it. And she says, so we're just in a death marketplace bartering one form for another. That's exactly it. The fact of the matter is, Pauline, and I think you know this, we're all going to die. And I don't want to be glib about that. I think death is an important thing that every human being has to come to terms with. But, but the fact is, we are all going to die. And, and we have to ask the question, at what point am I allowed to choose what risks I'm willing to take and what risks 
I'm not willing to take. At what point is it my decision? If essentially there's been no difference, if there's been no difference in the number of deaths, and you can't say like, for instance, it'd be one thing like we were saying, well, if part of the reduction is because people have been indoors, so they're not at risk because they're not doing risky things. But heart disease is going to take you anyway, whether you're indoors or not. In fact, people have been eating the food like there's no tomorrow. I've put on a few COVID-19 pounds, kids. I've put on a couple. I, I hate to admit it, but man, it, it's been hard. You know, there's a little bit of emotional eating going on here at Gaston Manor. I, I, I have to admit it. So the fact is, you would think that there would be the same number of heart disease deaths, if not more. There's been a reduction, according to the data. The fact is, people are still dying with heart disease. But if you die with heart disease, but you have the COVID at the time, they're going to mark it as a COVID death. That's just pure and simple. Now, there's a whole nother discussion that I'm not going to get into, but there's a whole nother discussion on the way that testing works. I'm not going to get into that, but the testing is not that accurate either. We can get into that some other time. Maybe we'll never talk about it. I think a lot of you guys know that, but that's what's going on. We're in a death market. You're just choosing what's going to go on the death certificate. But at the end of the day, there's no increase. There's no increase in the deaths. There just isn't. I'm sorry. The data shows that the CDC's numbers, the research that Genevieve here has done, Johns Hopkins, all the recording in the world, you can take your numbers from anywhere. The death rate has not gone up in my country, in America. And I would imagine in yours too. I bet you in Austria and, and um, Indonesia and Canada and so on, you do the research, the death rate's the same. The death rate's the same. Uh, let's see here. George says, I got your point, Mike, but the problem is you need a brain to understand that. <laughs> and that's where a lot of people fail the test. <laughs> oh, George, God bless you, my friend, all the way from Europe, coming with the deep wisdom, the deep wisdom. Yeah, that's the problem. And I think that's why I was going on and on about the truth. So many people just don't want to face the facts. I, and, 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 I hear, and here's the issue. We all have this lizard brain or a monkey brain. We've got these kind of you know, these highly developed minds that we are able to use. And, uh, you know, and if you, if you believe, remember the movie Lucy with Scarlett Johansson, I never saw it, but the, the premise being, she was this being, this woman that actually was able to use more and more of her brain and she became like dangerous to the point where she became godlike, you know? Uh, but, but this concept that we have these highly developed, highly developed brains are very powerful and so they're sophisticated. We're able to think through things. We get great, beautiful literature and beautiful music, the arts, philosophy, theology, science. I mean, the things we put, we've put men and women into space. We've done amazing things with these, these pieces of tissue in our skulls. And, and when we put them together, they're even more powerful. Very sophisticated. But here's the problem. We still have that kind of, that kind of primal lizard brain in the background. And this thing is instinctual. It's an animal. And it takes over when we're fearful. It takes over. When you're scared, your body seizes up, your breathing increases, your eye, your pupils dilate, and it's fight or flight. There's no, have you ever been trained? Hopefully you've never done this, but if you've been trained in any first aid, if somebody's in the water and they're struggling, they're going under, they're drowning. The, the, one of the first things they teach you is do not under any circumstances, jump in after that person. Well, why is that? You would think that you jump in, you're like, hey, I'm going to save you. I'm a, just, I got you. Don't worry. What happens? They will kill you. They're so terrified that they will grab onto you and pull you down with them because they're terrified. It's fear. 
Fear is so powerful, it negates any sophistication, it negates any depth, it negates any little nuance that the human mind is capable of grasping and playing with and understanding all out the door. When you've got fear, people, they resort to a primal animalistic state. And I think that's what's going on. Yes, people are not running around, although they are burning cities down, uh, but... (laughs) But people are not running around like a bunch of apes in the streets and lizard men. And, but, but if you look at the way we're behaving, we're irrational. We're terrified. If fights are breaking out, if you go somewhere without a mask, people will physically assault you. That You can watch the videos. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So what should we do? I mean, we should absolutely protect those that are vulnerable. I didn't finish that thought a while earlier. I want to get back to some of these comments. And then I want to play my clip. Goodness gracious, but we should protect those that are vulnerable. Comorbidity, let's protect those people. Uh, People in a nursing home, let's protect those people. We know who's vulnerable. It's a fraction of the economy. It's a fraction of the population. It's a fraction of society. This this nonsense of like, oh, we've got the hospitals. They, you know, listen to listen very closely to the news. Don't just listen with your monkey brain. Listen to the news. They'll say things like. Oh, hospitals, you know, they're, they're concerned. Uh, they're starting to see a surge in patients, et cetera. And they're making it so that what they do is they make it sound like the hospital's overwhelmed. The hospital's not. The hospitals do not dedicate 100% of their rooms to COVID-19 waiting for the pandemic. They might take 10% of their beds and set them aside for COVID in the case of. They might then say, well, gee, we're having a spike, meaning we had three or four people. Now we've got 13 out of, and we've got 100 beds. We're starting, we're starting to get concerned. Boy, if this thing spikes, we're, we're going to be at capacity. You and I here at capacity, we think that means the hospital, the 1,000 beds in that hospital in your city is overwhelmed with COVID. It's not the case. It's a small percentage. And the way that the news will report it, they'll say, it may be that they will become overwhelmed. They're always, there's a little caveat. There's a little qualifier. Pay attention. If you listen for it, you'll hear it all the time. It may be. It could happen. They, they think it might happen. It's going, they, they told us that there were going to be a couple million dead in America. There was going to be hundred million, hundreds of millions dead across the globe at the beginning of this. It never happened. Never happened. Let's get back to some of these comments. Let me take a breath here. Doughboy said, I had the flu last week. Well, Doughboy, I'm sorry to hear that. I, uh, I, so, it sounds like you've gotten better. I, I hope you're doing well. George says, Trump doesn't care about the data, and he was too busy watching Fox and playing golf. Yeah, I think Trump could have done a better job. I mean, look, I, I, there's a lot. I, I want to be careful. There's a lot about Trump that I liked. There were quite a few things about Trump I didn't like. And um, I, for me, Trump, he's just got one... He's got one kind of tone, one approach. He's a bit of a one-trick pony. People say, oh, he's playing 4D chess. I don't believe it. I think he's savvy. I think he's canny. I think he's great in a knife fight. I mean, this guy, he's a brawler. I think there's, he's, he's, I think he's really good at a lot of things, but he's got one approach to everything and it, it, not a lot of nuance. And at times, you got to modulate a little bit. Great leaders can modulate. Uh, he's not a dictator, so he can't just do what he wants. He's got to play the game a little bit. And sometimes... Uh, he's done fantastic with it, and sometimes not so much. Pauling says this is a very nuanced argument, and that is hard to get across on Moss. I agree, it is. But you know what, Pauline, I agree with you. But the funny thing is, we're talking about the data. It's so straightforward, and I think the problem is it creates cognitive dissonance. You, you know, you get cognitive dissonance because you can't hold two opposing facts in your mind. You know, one of them is. Uh, hey, uh, COVID's killing everybody. And the other is, this thing's not 
killing any more people. And you go, well, these are opposing facts. I don't know what to do with them. And if you're getting fed a steady diet, I mean, this is part of the problem. If people are out taking a walk, if they're reading books, if they're living their life, they're enjoying time with their friends, they would think differently about this. But we're all locked up. We're not allowed to integrate with each other. We're not allowed to socialize with each other. You can't get around the Thanksgiving table because, you know, heaven forbid people actually share dissenting views. Uh, and they're watching the they're watching media all the time. The media is feeding them a steady diet of uh, fear-inducing bullshit. That's just all it is. Hey, Pions with Zero, glad to have you along, man. And he says, hey, Mike, seems like we're talking about a guy with a hammer to which everything is a nail. Now, I don't know if you're talking about me, bro. <laughs> I hope we're not talking about me. I am a hammer. I will admit that. Uh, and I'm hitting this nail hard. But I, I, I'm not sure. I'd love for you to expand on that. I don't think that you're taking a shot at me, but I just thought that was funny because I think you could say that about me too. Um, but that is one of my favorite sayings, as you know. Um, oh, you're talking about Donald. He says, I'm just talking about good old Donald. Gotcha. The 100%. And we're all guilty of it. I and mean, we all do it. But um, but yeah, Donald is kind of a, he's a big hammer and, and the world is his nail <laughs> for sure. So let's see here. Pauline has had a quick, take a quick drink, um, have a conversation. You have to have trust and an open mind. Well, that's it. And you have to want to know the truth. And I think that's the problem. I think a lot of folks, we become so partisan. I find now in, in, in discussions with even people I love, family members, I'm not talking about my wife, but, I, but like family members, extended family members, uh, friends or associates, people that I know, I find like everybody's on edge and everybody seems to be reading into every comment. You might make a statement about something and they're worried that like you're trying to build a political argument. Now, that might be just me that I love to argue. I, I don't know what it is, but I just feel like it's hard to engage in just an honest, straightforward discussion. It's hard to just put information out there. And as people engage with that information, bring your perspective to it, bring your thoughts to it. I, I'm open to that. I don't need everybody to agree with me. I really don't want to live in a world where everybody agrees with me. I want to live in a world where everybody submits to me as, as their glorious leader. That's different. You don't have to agree. I just want you to bow down. That's not, is that so much, is that so much to ask? Is that so hard? I don't know why that's so hard. But, but joking aside, I want to live in a world where I can engage things with people honestly. And if you don't agree with me, I want to engage it in a way that's intellectually honest. That's stimulating to me. That's fascinating to me. I come away and learn things. But I feel like when people are agendized and they're worried about letting the other side win, when they're when they just they've made up their mind and they just and they're just ready for the fight, no matter what you say, uh, you you can't you can't win. And uh, I had I had this experience recently where I started bringing up some information, and these people were like they agreed 100% when it was just the data points. As soon as I started bringing the data points together to kind of build a case for something. All of a sudden, like their opinions change. You know, they didn't agree. No, they didn't want to. They didn't want to admit to that. It was like people don't want to deal with the truth. They don't want to deal with the truth if it threatens what they believe. And uh, I'm no different. I mean, I'm, we're all human beings. It's this is what we do. We uh, we struggle with this kind of stuff. But I think the fight is to recognize it in yourself and say, okay, I know I'm biased. I know I have certain inclinations. And I don't have to give up those biases. I'm not asking you to say, well, come to me as a blank slate. It's fine. Have your views. But be willing to deal with things in a way that's honest. If somebody puts something on the table and you can't refute it, you don't have a real reason why you don't agree with that, say, you know, that's a good point. That doesn't mean you lost. 
It doesn't even mean that, you, you know, oh, that's a good point. Now I'm going to change. I'm going to become a, a capitalist or, oh, you got me. Now I'm going to join the Communist Party. You don't have to do that. You could just say, that's a great point. I don't really have an answer for that. You should have some intellectual curiosity. That should send you on a little bit of a rabbit trail on your own time saying, I want to learn more about this. Why, why is this this way? Why, what, what do conservatives say about this? Why, you know, et cetera. So uh, that, that's that. Let's look at a couple more. Um, uh, Pines with Zero says, I wouldn't dare to say anything like this to a prospective world leader. I have survival instinct. <laughs> Fair enough. I need an army. I think you're safe with me. I need an army. I'm sitting here in upstate New York uh, on my little five-acre property, you know, trying to figure out how do I amass an army and uh, take control. So let's see. I'm getting texts from my buddy Shane um, in Australia. Pauline says, what's changed is the internet is giving the 0.1% a bigger voice than they should have. I would, I would, I would agree. Oh, and Pines of Zero would ask, what do you think changed? I think the U.S. was always split 50-50, but I don't remember things being this much either or. It has become very politicized and very partisan. Here's what I think is going on. And uh, I, I talked about this in a podcast or two ago. Uh, not a live stream, but I think a couple weeks ago, it's on Spotify if you want to check it out. But essentially, we tend to think of the right versus the left. And I don't think that's what's going on in America. I don't think it's the right versus the left, meaning the conservatives versus the liberals, the progressives. I think the reason that this has gotten so heated is this is actually a battle for the soul of progressivism. I think in America, what we assume is conservatism is often a form of progressivism. And what I mean by that, I say progressivism with a small p, just the idea, and this is hundreds of years old, uh, that free markets liberate people, create wealth, um, allow uh, never-ending growth, never-ending progress, never-ending never improvement, movement forward. This, this Adam Smith's free market, the invisible hand, and this idea that we can just have never-ending growth if we allow the markets to do their things is a progressive idea. It's not a conservative idea, historically speaking. Now, people of a conservative nature tend to embrace it because they're interested in having a, a modicum of liberty that allows them to own private property, to, to go about, have freedom of religion and, and practice their faith. Those are some conservative ideas. But essentially, this free market vision is a progressive vision. And, and ultimately what it's saying is we can create a world that, that continues to improve and never ends. The improvement never stops. It, it never becomes perfect. It just keeps getting better and better. We create more wealth. We create more technology. We create more luxury. More and more of the world enjoys it. More people are lifted out of poverty into material well-being. And then just the world continues on. This is a vision. This is a progressive Vision. A true conservative vision is a king on a throne, and uh, you know you're kind of under his foot, and you kind of do what he says. That's that you know the not that you know, but monarchy tends to be in in tradition and orthodoxy. These are true conservative ideas. We want to conserve the past, not progress forward. So so that's animated by this progressive vision of never-ending improvement. Another branch of progressivism wants to create a secular heaven on earth. They want to create heaven on earth, a utopia. And the only way that you can create utopia is to strip people of their freedom. You see, if I'm allowed to do what I want, that wrecks it because I might do something that spoils utopia. 
So we have to then invest in the experts, the quote-unquote scientists, those that know better than us, the power to tell us what we can and can't do so that we can create this progressive utopia. We can progress forward where all mankind is equal. Everyone enjoys material well-being. Everyone has happiness. Everyone lives in this kind of perfect society where we've eliminated all poverty. We've eliminated all inequity. Every tear is wiped away and every uh, frown is turned upside down. (laughs) I don't think that's in scripture, but it's this idea of a secular heaven, a heaven on earth, a utopia. And so you've got these two progressive visions and they are at war with one another as to which one is going to have control of the West and of the world, which vision, which animating idea behind progressivism will win. And often these kind of sibling rivalries are more brutal. This is why civil wars are more brutal often than other types of wars, because because there's a hatred. This is why the Nazis and the communists had such a hate for each other. They were siblings. The Nazis were, were national socialists. They just didn't want, they didn't care about global communism. They cared about socialism for Germany. And the communists couldn't abide that because there wasn't room for a bunch of countries to be socialists and nationalists. They all needed to come under the international communist uh, umbrella. And so it's a very long answer to a question, what do I think has changed? What I think is going on here is these ideologies are coming to a head and they're coming and they're butting heads. They are that the, 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 the rivalry between these two progressive ideologies is coming to a head and we are caught in the middle of this uh, evolving civil war. Uh, that's what I think is happening. And that's why I think it's becoming more and more bitter because I think the stakes are obvious now. Before there was room... You know, this utopia wasn't taken that seriously. In fact, a lot of intellectual historians thought that had gone away, that that had lost. But here it is. Um, back in the 90s, they thought, oh, no, that's that's not even a thing anymore. It, it looks like uh, the, the free market liberalism is won out. And the fact of the matter is um, utopia is back with a vengeance. And what we have is a battle. As you see it in the Democrat Party, when you see the folks like AOC, Ilhan Omar, and a lot of these uh, Bernie Sanders, a lot of these socialists, uh, Yang and his gang, love you guys, but uh, these like hardcore socialists fighting against the old guard, quote unquote, liberals, the old fashioned liberals in the party. This is that battle between those two groups. That's what I think. Um, Pauline says the media used to be a gatekeeper. Now the mainstream media is irrelevant almost. George says, uh, so it took this stream 45 minutes to bring Mike the dictator out. Uh, elbow cough. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I want to, I, you can't always lead with that. Sometimes I'm trying to slip it in, uh, kind of like a Trojan horse, George. I, I had to package it inside the Trojan horse of this discussion. Pauline says, if you listen to Jordan Peterson, the problem is that we haven't figured out a way to balance society so that the most don't have X amount more than the least. Well, I think that there's an assumption there and that that's that heaven on earth thing. There's an assumption that everyone should have equal amounts. Why should everybody have equal? I mean, there's something in the Christian faith that tries to teach you to learn to be happy with what you have. Uh, This is why, um, uh, I don't want to get too far into this, but acquisitiveness used to be considered a deadly sin. And now it's what drives the free market economy is the, the desire to acquire. I'm a free market guy. I like the free market. I'm an entrepreneur. I love wealth creation and so on. I'm not against all this. I'm just trying to call out what I understand to be going on dynamic wise. 
Uh, she says, when the gap gets too big, society makes a correction. Fair enough. And uh, that's where the 1% movement was all about. Yeah, the, the Occupy Wall Street people were big on that. Pauline also says, when people are generally prospering, uh, people don't have time to think about the equality. When people are idle, they have a lot of time to think about it. No doubt. No doubt there. I said it earlier, I was going to play a little clip, and I'm just going to put in some headphones here so I can do that. But I want to play a little clip for you. Uh, and now this, the reason I want to play this, if you keep in mind what we just talked about regarding, um, regarding uh, Dr. or sorry, regarding uh, Johns Hopkins. Boy, I hate saying Johns Hopkins. It just sounds, feels wrong. You know what I'm talking about? Johns Hopkins. So that newsletter that we read from Johns Hopkins saying that there are no deaths, no increase in deaths. In fact, there's been a decrease. So there's a correlative decrease for every COVID death. There's been a decrease in, um, in uh, the number of people that, that have died from things like heart disease and so on. I want to play this clip for you as we round out the show. And I'm, I'm going to stay on afterwards to, have, to continue chatting with the live audience. But I want to play this clip. This is a, this is a doctor. He'll identify himself. He's calling in. There's a, there's a Canadian hearing. It's, it's a, I don't know what level, if it's a state or a province level hearing. Uh, but this Canadian uh, doctor calls in and he wants to share, you know, sometimes they open the floor for concerned citizens, experts, and so on to share their thoughts. And he's chiming in and maybe Pauline um, can uh, tell us a little bit. I think this is happening in, I think this guy is tied to Alberta. So I'm just going to play this and, and uh, it's about four minutes long, but I want to play it. I might stop it and make a comment or two, but keep in mind what we just talked about, about the number of deaths being no different. If anything, they're going to be fewer. And, and let's hear what this doctor has to say. Uh, Mr. Chairman, this is Dr. Hawkinson. I just want to let you know I'm standing by. Oh, okay. Well, we would love to hear from you. The floor is yours. Thank you very much. Um, I do appreciate the opportunity to address you on this very important matter. Um, I'm, what I'm going to say is lay language and blunt. Um, it's counter-narrative, and so, so you don't immediately think I'm a quack. I'm going to briefly outline my credentials so that you can understand where I'm coming from in terms of knowledge base in all of this. I'm a medical specialist in pathology, which includes virology. I trained at Cambridge University in the UK. I'm the ex-president of the pathology section of the Medical Association. I was pre previously an assistant professor in the faculty of medicine doing a lot of teaching. I was the chairman of the Royal College of Physicians of Canada Examination Committee in Pathology in Ottawa. But more to the point, I'm currently the chairman of a biotechnology company in North Carolina selling a COVID-19 test. And I might, you might say I know a little bit about all of this. I'm just going to interrupt real quick. So if you're not following that, uh, and let me know in the, in the comments if the audio is good on this or not. Uh, pathology, immunology expert, he's chaired, he's led. I mean, this guy has done really well career-wise. He trained at Cambridge, um, served both in America and in Canada. I mean, this, this, this doctor has a lot of expertise in the specifics of what we're dealing with right now. And um, he is also uh, chairing a company in North Carolina that makes the COVID-19 test. They oversee COVID-19 testing. So I'm going to just keep playing this, but I just want to make sure this guy's got the bona fides. See, this is not some quack. And I've got his information. I, I can follow up with that in just a minute. Let's listen to what he says. The bottom line is simply this. There is utterly unfounded 
public hysteria driven by the media and politicians. It's outrageous. This is the greatest hoax ever perpetrated on an unsuspecting public. There is absolutely nothing that can be done to contain this virus other than protecting older, more vulnerable people. It should be thought of nothing more than a bad flu season. This is not Ebola. It's not SARS. It's politics playing medicine, and that's a very dangerous game. There is no action of any kind needed other than what happened last year when we got felt unwell. We stayed home, we took chicken noodle soup, we didn't visit Granny, and we decided when we would return to work. We didn't have anyone need anyone to tell us. Masks are utterly useless. There is no evidence base for their effectiveness whatsoever. Paper masks and fabric masks are simply virtue signaling. They're not even worn effectively most of the time. It's, it's utterly ridiculous seeing these unfortunate, uneducated people, I'm not saying that in a perjurative sense, seeing these people walking around like lemmings, obeying without any knowledge base to put the mask on their face. Social distancing is also useless because COVID is spread by aerosols, which travel 30 meters or so before landing. Enclosures have had such terrible unintended consequences. They should, you, everywhere should be open tomorrow, as was stated in the Great Barrington Declaration that I circulated prior to this meeting. And a word on testing. I do want to emphasize that I'm in the business of, te of testing for COVID. I do want to emphasize that positive test results do not, underlined in neon, mean a clinical infection. It's simply driving public hysteria and all testing should stop unless you're presenting to hospital with some respiratory problem. All that should be done is to protect the vulnerable and to give them all in the nursing homes that are under your control. Give them all three to 5,000 international units of vitamin D every day, which, is, which has been shown to radically reduce the likelihood of infection. And I would remind you all that using the province's own statistics, the risk of death under 65 in this province is one in 300,000. One in 300,000. You've got to get a grip on this. The scale of the response that you're undertaking with no evidence for it is utterly ridiculous given the consequences of acting in a way that you're proposing. All kinds of suicides, business closures, funerals, weddings, etc., etc. It's simply outrageous. It's just another bad flu. And you've got to get your minds around that. Let people make their own decisions. You should be totally out of the business of medicine. You're being led by, down the garden path by the chief medical officer of health for this province. I'm absolutely outraged that this has reached this level. It should all stop tomorrow. Thank you very much. And there you have it. Uh, it's just mind-blowing. It's just mind-blowing. Now, I understand he's just one guy, but this guy's got the bona fides. He's actually in the industry making COVID-19 tests. He's a certified doctor, not just any medical doctor. I understand you go, oh, he, you know, some of these doctors are just, uh, you know, general practitioners. This guy's an immunologist. He's a, he, he's a pathologist. He, he knows this stuff. And uh, it's just really troubling. And, you know, I think he hits the nail on the head, which is 
You've got uh, politicians in the game of medicine. And, and I think we have to ask questions as to why. So that's that. I, I want to leave you with that because when you take into context this man's comments, and there are others like him, there are many others like him making these comments. They're being silenced, they're being squashed, uh, and in some cases they're being persecuted. I watched a video of a doctor uh, being arrested on a live stream, just some, I don't know if it was in France or Germany, just some scrawny little guy doing a live stream. And they burst, I mean, you know, these guys burst in full tactical gear and they take them down for what? For disseminating information. It's really troubling. And look, I understand I'm not an expert, et cetera. So maybe I'm the wrong guy to make these calls. But when the data says that there are no more deaths, when the data says we've had a significant drop in the leading causes of death and suddenly a strange correlating spike in the COVID deaths, and at the end of the day, they equal the same amount of deaths that they typically do every year, I have to ask a question. I have to ask the question, what are we doing? And the untold damage that we're doing to people's lives, to their relationships, to their ability to feed and care for their families, to build wealth, to prepare for a future, we're playing into the hands of people that think that you and I should not be allowed to make decisions for ourselves, that we should rely more on the government for everything we need, that we should allow them to choose what and how and why and when and where we live and do and say, etc. So I hope that this has kind of been enlightening. I know some of you folks in my audience are already there. You're like, hey, I'm with you, Mike. You're preaching to the choir. And those of you that are there, great. If, if, I appreciate that and spread the word. Those of you that aren't, uh, I'm open to dissension. I'm open to disagreement. I'm open to argument. Get in touch. Tell me where I'm wrong. Tell me what I'm missing. But on the other side, I, I just implore you. I beseech you. Stop for a minute and think about this. Try to put the fear aside. Stop listening to the news all the time. Stop taking in the, the commentary on this stuff and look at the facts. What do these facts tell you? What do these facts tell you? You've got the anecdotal information from this expert, this gentleman in Canada, and then you've got the facts from the CDC and from Johns Hopkins, even though they hit it because they don't want to lessen the impact of COVID, the pandemic. What do these facts tell us? Guys, I hope for you that you can be free. That's what I want. I want my audience to be free. I want them to think for themselves. You don't have to agree with me. But I want you to be able to think for yourself. I don't want you to be fearful. I don't want you to go into this uh, next day of yours, the next day, the next day, fearful for your life, worried. I want you to have confidence. I want you to be free. And I want you to be able to make choices and decisions that you believe are good for you and your family. I want you to be able to feed your children. I want you to be able to pay your bills. I want you to be able to build for tomorrow. I want you to be able to manifest the good aspects of human nature. And I want you to have the freedom to work on those flaws and weaknesses that you have in ways that help you become better and grow. I don't want you to lose your liberty. I don't want you to live in fear. And I think these numbers tell us that we don't have to live in fear. Yes, COVID is a real thing and we have to be careful. We have to look out for the vulnerable in our population. Let's keep them indoors. Let's keep them safe. But let's not punish everybody because there's a really, really virulent uh, kind of an analogous to a flu bug going around because that's just suicide. Guys, I hope this is helpful to you. I want you to know each and every one of you. I love you. 
and I want the best for you. I appreciate you. Thanks for spending time with me and I will catch you in the next episode. Thank you.